On November the 1st, 1922, Egyptologist Howard Carter and his team of excavators began digging in a previously undisturbed plot of land in the Valley of the Kings. For decades, archaeologists had searched for the tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun with no success, and that November was to be Carter's final attempt to locate lost treasures. What Carter ultimately discovered, the iconic sarcophagus, the mummy and its rumoured curse, and the thousands of precious artefacts, would shape Egyptian politics, the field of archaeology, and how museums honour the past for years to come. This is Rachel Havard with the Oxford Comments. On today's episode, to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, we're looking beyond the sensation of Howard Carter's discovery and discussing the legacy of early 20th century Egyptology with two of the field's leading scholars. For our first interview, we are excited to welcome Bob Breyer. Bob is one of the world's foremost Egyptologists, and his new book, Tutankhamun and the Tomb That Changed the World, tells a story not only of Howard Carter's discovery, but of the century of research that has followed. Hi, Bob. Thank you for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself and your book? Sure. Well, I'm an Egyptologist, and all Egyptologists have specialties. Mine tends to be mummies, so I work with mummies mostly. Um, and I've recently done a book on Tutankhamun, and that's why we're talking. Uh, it's a book about Tutankhamun and how it's a tomb that changed the world. Wonderful. Thank you. So what drew you to study Tutankhamun? His mummy. <laughs> it's my specialty. And um, many, many years ago, I, uh, I wrote a book about Tutankhamun called uh, The Murder of Tutankhamun, which was based on forensics about the mummy of Tutankhamun. And after that, you know, I, I actually got to investigate the fetuses. There were two fetuses in the tomb of Tutankhamun. His wife, his young teenage wife, Ankasanamun, had two miscarriages and there were fetuses buried like little mummies inside the tomb and I investigated those too. So they sort of became my real interest in, in Tutankhamun and that was my window into the world of King Tut. Could you tell us a bit about the newly discovered letters from Howard Carter relating to items found in Tutankhamun's tomb that have mysteriously appeared on the antiquities market and in museums around the world? Yes, yes, yes. There's been a lot of talk about that. Um, it was known for a long time that Howard Carter and Lord, Lord Carnarvon had taken some objects from the tomb. But I think no one realized the extent to which the pilfering had gone on. Um, and recently, a friend of mine said, oh, I've got a letter about this. And he, and he showed me this letter. And it's a letter from Sir Alan Gardner, who is a translator, famous, famous, famous translator. And he was on Carter's team. He was going to translate all the papyri that are found in the tomb and things like that, though no papyri were ever found. But anyway, Carter, at the end of the excavation, after everything's cleared out, this is 1932 or 1933, um, gave Sir Alan Gardner an amulet and just said, it's not from the tomb, but here's an amulet, an ancient Egyptian amulet. And Gardner showed it to Rex Engelbach, who was the curator at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And Engelbach looked at it and said, this comes from Tutankhamun's tomb. We have several just like it from the same mold. And Gardner felt very bad about being put in this position of having stolen material. And he wrote to Howard Carter and he said, Carter, you put me in a really bad position. Um, I've got this stolen object here um, and I don't appreciate it at all. So it showed the extent to which Carter was taking things and treating them rather cavalierly. And, you know, in a later letter to Rex Engelbach, I mean, it, it, it's an amazing thing, but, but he, Carter, you know, Gardner actually says, and oh, by the way, Carter gave me the, the seals to Tutankhamun's tomb. I gave them to my son. 
So they were really acting rather cavalierly about this whole tomb. How did the discovery of the tomb impact fields beyond Egyptology? Oh, that's, that's sort of why I called the book uh, Tutankhamun and the Tomb That Changed the World. There were tremendous ramifications, tremendous ramifications in all kinds of areas. One was political. Um, one of the things that happened, now at the time of the discovery of the tomb, England was running Egypt. It was a colonial situation. And Carter and Carnarvon really felt they sort of owned the tomb. And they made it, Carnarvon it was, who made a terrible decision, absolutely awful decision. They were besieged by the journalists as soon as they discovered the tomb. And they couldn't work under these conditions. They wanted the, things to calm down. So Carnarvon decided he would sell the rights to the tomb, the story to the tomb, to just one newspaper, the London Times. So what that meant was no other journalist could interview Carter or Carnarvon or get any information about it, even the Egyptian journalists. So imagine if you're an Egyptian journalist and you can't even run the story if, about something in your own country. So people were furious. And this became a kind of rallying point that whose tomb is this? And eventually it would lead to Carter being locked out of the tomb for a year. Um, and I think in some small way, it eventually led Egypt on the path to independence. The British would eventually have to leave and the boy king Tutankhamun was a kind of rallying point for this. He's our Pharaoh. So that's one ramification of the tomb. But there are others that are more Egyptological, for example, after Tutankhamun's tomb, it would eventually become law that no objects found in Egypt, no artifacts would leave Egypt. And that's how it is today. In Tutankhamun's time, you know, when the discovery of the tomb, during the 1920s, 1930s, there was a division of the fines. If an excavating team came to Egypt, you could expect to bring home half the fines. And museums would get something for their expense. Universities would get something for their expense. But after Tutankhamun, it eventually led to the conclusion, everything that's Egypt's should stay in Egypt, right? So that's another sort of surprising um, legacy of Tutankhamun. And there's one that affects the world much more widely that, that people don't realize. And it's the idea of how museums are run today. Tutankhamun was the first blockbuster exhibit in history. When in the 1970s, Tutankhamun came to America, it was spectacular. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And there was a guy at, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art who was the director, right, Thomas Hoving. And he was a bit of a P.T. Barnum, a real showman. And he's the one who realized you could make a fortune from an impressive exhibition. And the way you would do it is through the gift shop. And he was the one who creates fabulous souvenirs to buy, very expensive ones. For example, there was a little replica he made of a Selkett statue that sold for $1,500 in the gift shop. And before Hoving, gift shop were places where you bought postcards, not expensive designer scarves or, or, or jackets and things like that. So Hoving was the one who figures out that a big blockbuster exhibit can make a fortune. And that's all due to Tutankhamun. So now museum budgets are all based on blockbuster exhibits. And that's really due to Tutankhamun. Now, in America, we have a show Saturday Night Live. I'm not sure how, how big it is in, in, in the UK. But when the Tutankhamun exhibit had come to New York, Steve Martin did this classic funny bit on, on Saturday Night Live, a song he sang called King Tut. And, and it, it became kind of viral. It went viral. Everybody knows it. But what people don't realize is that it's really about 
museums because there's a line in you know everybody remembers the line you king tut born in arizona built a condo made of stone or king tut people remember that but there's also a line about if i'd have known people would line up to see him i'd have taken all my money and bought me a museum so it's really about the blockbuster exhibit that's all due to king tut that leads me into the next question which you've half answered already Tutankhamun's story gripped people across the world. Could you briefly explain why or how? One of the ways that Tutankhamun's tomb changed the world is by how a tomb is excavated. When Carter discovered the tomb, and he was a very good excavator who knew what he was doing, he knew what he was looking for, and he knew what to do when he found it. As soon as he found the tomb, he formed a team, an all-star team. He knew he would need conservators to preserve the artifacts. He would need a photographer to photograph everything. He would need a translator. He would need an engineer to help him move things around in this small tomb. So he formed this all-star team and he did things that no one had ever done before. For example, Carter decided that everything should be photographed in situ, as it was in the tomb when Tut died, just as it was placed on the day of his death. So nothing is moved until his photographer, Harry Burton, takes a picture of it. Then they move the one object. They may have to conserve it. They may have to preserve it so it can be moved. It may be fragile, but he's moving slowly, Carter. Remember, it will take him more than 10 years to empty the tomb. So they're photographing everything in situ very carefully. They've also set up a laboratory for conserving all of these things. It's in an abandoned, it's in an empty tomb in the Valley of the Kings. So they've got a conservation laboratory, they've got a photographer, and Carter, who was an artist, is doing detailed drawings of things that the photograph won't capture. For example, the position of beads on the collar placed on the mummy of Tutankhamun. So he's doing all these drawings, he's got the photographs, he's got the conservators, he's got everything. And this, in a sense, becomes a model for how one should excavate a tomb. And even to this day, almost all Egyptologists agreed Carter did a fantastic job, and we're all in awe of his skills. You present new resources and research in such vivid detail, providing a compelling and accessible introduction to arguably the greatest archaeological discovery ever. What did you find most exciting while conducting your research? You know, originally when I did the book, I thought it would be just a survey of research that had been done. And that would be interesting in itself. That is, the, many people think that you excavate a tomb, Tutankhamun's tomb is excavated, the objects are moved to Cairo, they're put in glass cases in museums, and that's the end of the story. But it's not. It's not. Um, there's research going on all the time on Tutankhamun objects. And so I thought I would survey that, and that would be it. But as I did the research, I realized there are all kinds of things that maybe were sometimes wrong even. Um, I'll give you an example. And, and as I said before, I'm a mummy person. I'm interested in mummies. And one of the great things about the research on Tutankhamun is his body has been CAT scanned, which is much more sophisticated and revealing than, say, just plain x-rays. So we have CAT scans of him. And one of the things that had been said about him was that he had a club foot and he walked on the side of his ankle. So the, the boy king would have been deformed. Now, when I read this, I looked at the scan and I just didn't see a club foot. And as I did a little more research, I saw that there was an orthopedic surgeon who had written in the same thing and said, I don't see a club foot. And then I started wondering, you know, 
is it really a club foot? And I don't think it is. Because when they did the x-ray of Tutankhamun's body, they didn't see it was as a club foot. When they uncovered the mummy and unwrapped it, the anatomist Douglas Derry did a careful examination of Tutankhamun, and he didn't see a club foot. So I think this idea of a club foot sort of, I don't know, came into the image of Tutankhamun as the fragile pharaoh, but I think it's wrong. So then I started looking at other things. For example, Tutankhamun was buried with dozens of pairs of sandals and shoes. If he really had walked on the side of his foot, the shoes would have been worn asymmetrically, right? Worn down asymmetrically. One would be terribly worn, the other, and it's not the case. They both look perfect, you know? So I think this notion of the fragile pharaoh is wrong. And this led me into another area of research. Was Tutankhamun a warrior? And I found block there blocks where Tutankhamun is shown in battle. So I think this notion of Titus, a, a, fair, a fragile pharaoh, is wrong. And we get new things like this all the time. So this is one of the purposes of the book, to present new things. One of the other fun things that I, I think is people will enjoy, I think some people may be disappointed when they start reading the chapter after seeing the title. I have a chapter, one chapter is titled, It Came From Outer Space. Um, now, it's not going to be about ancient aliens. Um, one of the interesting things to, to me about Tutankhamun's tomb is that during the time of Tutankhamun, there were no iron objects in Egypt. They didn't have iron. But in Tutankhamun's tomb, there are five iron objects. Where did they come from? And that's where it came from outer space comes in. They were made out of meteorites. Someone had found a meteorite and hammered these things into objects. So that's the it came from outer space. So you find uh, loads of interesting, fun things when you start doing research on Tutankhamun that the general public doesn't know. So that's sort of why I wrote the book. I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in that chapter title. Following up on your last answer, where did the idea of the fragile pharaoh originate? I think this whole idea of Tutankhamun having a club foot starts with the CAT scan of the pharaoh. Before that, we had no suggestion that Tutankhamun was deformed. We had a physical examination of the body, no hint that the ankle was deformed. We had the x-rays of the body, no hint that the body was deformed. Then when we get the CAT scan, in a book by the team that CAT scanned Tutankhamun and other pharaohs, we get the statement that he had a club foot. So it comes from the CAT scan study. And I think what happened, the reason we get the suggestion of a club foot is it was a very large team. And very often with a large team, you get different opinions about things. And I think at some point someone said, maybe that's a club foot. And then I think maybe everybody just didn't care enough and they gave in, yeah, yeah, he's got a club foot. So I think it was a kind of almost group decision, group think, and that's how the, the fragile pharaoh came about. You know, also it was said as evidence of the club foot that in the tomb, there were quite a few walking sticks and canes, which might suggest that Tutankhamun was infirm, that he needed these canes and walking sticks to support himself. But that's not at all true. I mean, these are st staves of authority. They're signs of authority. Officials in ancient Egypt often carried a staff or a cane or just to show that they were they were they were overseers and things like that. And and many, many pharaohs are shown with, with staves of authority. So no, um, I don't think that either means that that he was in frail or anything like that at all. Thank you. That's fascinating. Speaking of Tutankhamun's mummy itself, 
Why is it still located in his tomb in the Valley of the Kings when everything else has been moved out into museums? That's a very good question. I think, I think the answer is rather simple. People are a little bit afraid of touching mummies and moving them. Um, it takes a special skill to handle a deceased body that's 4,000 years old or 3,000 years old. So I think people have been hesitant about moving it out. For years, I've been told, oh, we're moving the mummy out of the tomb in about you know, another six months, another six months, but it's gone on for years. And everything has been moved. All of the Tutankhamun objects have been moved to the new Grand Egyptian Museum on the Giza Plateau, except the mummy of Tutankhamun. And I think they're just hesitant about moving it. I've seen that quite a bit. I've seen where people just didn't want to touch mummies. And I think that's part of it. So he's still in the tomb and they say they're going to move it any day now, but I haven't seen it being moved yet. Do you think the mummy should be moved? I think eventually it, sh it should go to the museum. I think it's now in this very small glass case in a corner in the museum. I think it's nice that tourists have been able to see the face of Tutankhamun. The rest of the body is covered. It's just uh, up to the shoulders. There's a, there's a linen shroud on the body and, and then you can see his face. Um, I think it's nice that people can see the face of the boy king, the famous pharaoh. Um, but I think it'll be fine if he's with his other objects, well displayed as, as it will be in the Grand Egyptian Museum. So I think it's fine. In conclusion, given all you know about Howard Carter, what do you think his legacy is, both culturally and academically? I think Carter has two different legacies. One is sort of cultural. He was a difficult man. He didn't have many close friends. And it's known that he took objects from the tomb. He made many political mistakes, right? So we know that about Carter. He was difficult, didn't always make the right decisions. And he died pretty much alone by himself. But that's one thing. When you look at his legacy as an archeologist, I think that's unchanged, untarnished. They're two different things. We all in the field admire Carter as an archeologist. His standards were extremely high. He did a great excavation of the tomb. So that's unchanged by the other things that people talk about. So I think he has really two legacies, two ways of viewing them. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure listening to one of the few scholars who has actually studied Tutankhamun's mummy in person. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Our second guest today, Peter Emanuelian, is a professor of Egyptology at Harvard University and director of the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East. His new book, Walking Among Pharaohs, is the definitive biography of George Reisner, contemporary of Howard Carter and perhaps the most important American archaeologist from the golden age of Egyptology. Hi, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Peter Manuelian. I'm the Barbara Bell Professor of Egyptology at Harvard University and director of the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East also director of the Giza Project at Harvard, and I've just recently published Walking Among Pharaohs, George Reisner and the Dawn of Modern Egyptology. Lovely, thank you. So who was George Reisner and why was he an important figure in American archaeology? George Reisner was important not only for Egyptology, but for archaeology in general. And the interesting thing about him is his career didn't start out that way. So he's of German descent, his family emigrated, and many of them ended up in the middle of the country in Indianapolis, and that's where he grew up. Uh, he was fascinated by ancient cultures and histories, went to a very good high school, and went on to Harvard University there. And his real interest at the beginning of his career was in Semitic philology, so biblical Hebrew, Akkadian, 
languages like this. And that was really where, what he thought he would do. He ended up back at Harvard for an MA and a PhD, and then on to Germany. And that's where he met for the first time German Egyptologists who trained him in this new field. He thought he'd teach at Harvard, but there wasn't enough money to keep him more than just one year. And then he found himself in Cairo with his first job offer to try to uh, publish parts of the Cairo Museum collection. He thought he would stay for one year. He ended up staying for more than 40. And that's where he met Phoebe Apperson Hearst, and she was looking for archaeologists to work for the University of California, Berkeley, all over the world. And he decided to take a right turn in his career and become an archaeologist. He saw the plunder going on and thought he could introduce the same kind of rigorous methodology that he had to his language studies. And the rest is history. He became one of the greatest archaeologists, not just in Egypt and the Sudan, but really anywhere in archaeological method at the start of the 20th century. Reisner had a remarkable career excavating sites in Egypt and Sudan and discovered tombs, hieroglyphic inscriptions, temples, settlements, colossal statues and more. What was the most impressive of his discoveries, his most obscure? Wow, that's a great question. Over such a long career, he made so many discoveries and opened up so many new fields. Uh, one of them, of course, is the best known, and that's the Giza pyramids, arguably the most famous archaeological site in the world. And his base, his headquarters was there. It was called Harvard Camp. After Phoebe Hearst pulled out her financial support around 1904 and 5, he reformed as the Harvard University Boston Museum of Fine Arts Expedition. And he was based in a series of little mud brick huts behind the pyramids, just a stone's throw away at Harvard camp. And this is where all the discoveries landed, even the ones from the Sudan. So they would make legal divisions with the antiquities authorities and send some things to Boston and some things to Cairo and some things to Khartoum. So among the most famous discoveries, I'd have to say the temples associated with the third and smallest pyramid at Giza, the pyramid of King Menkaure in the fourth dynasty or pyramid age. So think about 2500, 2400 BCE. And there was an amazing series of royal statuary that he turned up in, oh, 1907, 1908, 1910. Perhaps most famous is the so-called dyad or pear statue of King Menkaure and either a queen, his mother, or a goddess, the debate continues since it's uninscribed. But it's an amazing piece. It's in a dark hard stone called gray wacky and shows the perfect features of the idealized, physically strong, bold, confident king, the semi-divine ruler, standing confidently with the woman next to him. That's in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston today. So the Giza statuary is an amazing discovery from the Middle Kingdom, think roughly 2000 BCE or so, in the middle part of Egypt in a cliff tomb site called Der el Bersha, he found probably the most beautiful and elaborate painted wooden Middle Kingdom coffin ever discovered belonging to a man named Jehudi Nacht. And then further south, he actually opened up an entirely new field of Nubian studies. He was the first to systematically explore the various pyramid fields of the Sudan, ancient Nubia. Believe it or not, there are more pyramids in the Sudan than there are in Egypt. And until Reisner's time, nobody could figure out how to get into them. It was a great mystery, and he figured it out on the first morning of his explorations that the entrances to these pyramids was not in the building, but further away in the ground. It was a pit leading to a staircase diagonally under the building. 
and then he was off and running. He could explore all the pyramid sites up and down uh, the, the Nile and the Sudan. So El Kuru and Nuri and Jebel Barkal and Meroe. So he almost single-handedly opened up uh, an entirely new field. And I'd say Nubian studies has successfully broken away from Egyptology to form its own discipline now and, and uh, has its own international meetings and journals. And so much work is going on there now that is based on the foundational excavations that Reisner did. Reisner's life and career also intersected negatively with the colonialism, racism and nationalism of the Western powers that imposed their influence on Egypt, particularly between the two world wars. What do you think about the issues concerning the repatriation of objects belonging to Egypt's national and cultural heritage that currently reside in American and European museums? Mm, this is a great question and a, a hot topic today, absolutely. Back in Reisner's day, things were very, very different. So remember, you had the British controlling the country. The Egyptians were yearning for their own independence, of course. And then the French were running the antiquities service. So here is an expat American trying to run an expedition with limited funding from back home and navigating his way through all of these different international forces. So whatever we might think of the arrangement back then, we have to give him props for following the rules. He was very much against the antiquities trade, for example, did everything uh, by the government procedures, had legal excavation concessions. In those days, there was partage or a 50-50 division of the fines between the excavator's home institution and the Egyptian Museum, the Egyptian Antiquities Service. So whatever you think of that setup, at least Reisner was following the rules. So it's very, very different from plundering operations and things that were going on in, uh, in previous generations. It's another debate, of course, how these objects are situated today and what museums they're in. But I think uh, nuance is, is key, and it's always important to consider on a case-by-case -case basis. What is that object? Where is it from? When did it leave the country? How did it leave the country? And I don't think there's a, a one size fits all rule. But Reisner was very strict, as I mentioned, in following the procedures, documenting everything he did, making sure that everything was on the up and up. Um, on the other side, the colonialism and the racism of the era and things like that, um, it's a more mixed message. He was certainly a person of his time and he had attitudes towards Nubian civilizations that we might uh, cringe at today. Some of his writings are uh, less than uh, current, shall we say, with current thinking. And that's a tricky, a tricky topic. You know, one doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we can certainly set aside some of the, in the interpretations of the racial ones and uh, uh, trying to connect aspects of Egyptian or Nubian society to Mediterranean cultures or ancestors or white Westerners, as opposed to an indigenous African culture, which both the Egyptians and the, the Nubians and the Sudan absolutely were. So um, difficult topic, um, invites more debate, and I hope that my book will bring that discussion to the fore, the good and the bad. Finally, why did he choose to write a biography about Reisner? Well, he's a fascinating individual and he led so many lives in a way. Uh, this book touches on the history of Harvard University, the history of Egyptian archeology, span Egyptian independence, international politics, the development of Egyptology as well. And the reason I got excited about it is that I used to work as a curator in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, where many of these records and objects now reside. And we started something called the Giza Archives Project, which now at Harvard is the Giza Project. This is an attempt just to round up all the archaeological data about the site of the famous Giza pyramids and put them online on a website for researchers or 
school groups or anyone to study. So photographs, diaries, objects, uh, plans and sections, drawings, etc. As the team and the students and the volunteers worked more and more through this data, it became clear that Reisner's career, the story really needed to be told, and not just about his Giza excavations, but about these 23 different sites all up and down the Nile. He even worked in 1909 and 1910 in Samaria in Palestine. And so I got more and more interested as a side project in trying to figure out what made this person tick. He was an absolute workaholic, um, but also supported many students and uh, other scholars emerging in the field at the time, always ready to lend a hand. He learned fluent Arabic, so he had his finger on the pulse of developments in Cairo and the politics. And so people would come up to Harvard camp to consult him, not just about archaeology, but about the lay of the land politically and uh, what he thought about it. And he was also ahead of his time in training the Egyptian staff in the so-called skill positions of archaeology. So photography, accounting, diary keeping. We have, for example, 73 diary journals written in Arabic by his Egyptian foreman. So he trusted them, he delegated responsible positions to them, um, and that was way ahead of its time. He really supported his Egyptian workmen, and many of them knew no other job. They worked for him for their entire lives, and their children came up through the ranks and did too. So many of his opinions about the politics of the era really were seen through the lens of his workmen trying to do what was best for them. He was sort of on their side versus, let's say, the more educated Kyrenes whom he distrusted in government and thought that they would be a little bit more oppressive um, against uh, Egyptian uh, workers and peasants and up and down the Nile. Uh, his solution to that was continued British rule, which one can certainly argue with as opposed to independence. So it's just a fascinating era. And I thought as an aside from the strict archeological work we were doing on the Giza pyramids and building this website and linking all of these materials, it was time to, uh, to tell that story and round him up. And uh, that's what I've enjoyed doing. It took about 15 years to pull it all together with archives at Harvard, at the Museum of Fine Arts, in Egypt, at Oxford, all over the place, all over the world. And along the way, I've discovered so much about people who worked with him, worked for him. I've met their descendants. They all have stories and documents to share. And so putting the whole story of one man's life together has just been a fascinating journey. Really rich research you've been doing then. It's taken a long time, but I hope it was worth it. <laughs> Um, one follow-up question. In summary, what should readers expect from your book? Well, I tried to be all things to all people. We'll see how that succeeds. But basically, scholars who are trying to put his career steps and the sequence of his excavations together, I hope that will lay his career out clearly, the different sites he dug and when and when he found these things, and who was present, you know, who was absent, who was present, um, the development of his career. I hope it will contribute to the development of archaeology in general, method, concern for stratigraphy when he was way ahead of his time, his organizational systems, how he documented his excavations and involved, as I mentioned, the Egyptian workmen, something that many of the other excavations were not doing to that extent. What else? A bit of the history of Harvard, the history of the Museum of Fine Arts, archaeology in general, navigating between two world wars, for example, you know, they actually used some Giza tombs as air raid shelters during World War II when they were worried about German bombing raids and the sirens were going off in Cairo. And so this milieu around him really cuts across royalty and VIPs and Egyptian politicians and other famous excavators. Howard Carter, who found Tutankhamun's tomb, comes through. Everyone knew everyone. 
and he was really up there with uh, with the most significant figures of his time, Egyptologically and archaeologically. Thank you, and thank you for talking with us about a remarkable person you spent so many years researching. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We want to thank both of our guests, Bob Breyer and Peter Emanuelian, for joining us on today's podcast. Both of their books, Tutankhamun in the Tomb That Changed the World and Walking Among Pharaohs, are now available from OUP. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list of additional book excerpts, journal articles and blog posts that explore a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Next month's episode will be the last one for 2022, so be sure to check it out. Follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. And please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 77 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.